Well, good morning. It's an honor to be back here again. I'm not sure how many times I've been here, but I think the next time qualifies me for a parking spot with my name on it. Um, but it's encouraging. I feel very comfortable here, and my focus has always been uh, the authority of God's Word. I talk a lot about creation and evolution because that's kind of how the Bible starts, and there's a lot of confusion with that. Um, this morning's talk is a unique presentation called Surprise. The Bible explains that. And here's the premise. Fairly often, scientists discover things that are confusing to them. It's not what they expected. But when you understand Scripture, it makes perfect sense. So we're going to go through about eight examples of things that scientists have relatively recently discovered and explain how the Bible makes perfect sense of it all the way through. And again, that's the main focus, is that we can trust Scripture from cover to cover. And for those of you who haven't heard me speak before, one of the main issues that I deal with in my ministry is the fact that right now, two-thirds or more, probably more, of youth from Christian homes, they end up walking away from their faith before they finish college. And that should be very alarming to everyone here this morning. Two-thirds or more. Again, these are not kids from religious homes. These are kids from fundamental evangelical Christian homes walking away from their faith because of the challenges that are going on. There are a number of factors behind that, but a lot of it has to do with that these youth, they were handed a set of beliefs without convictions. You know, They might have been taught the right things, like myself, my own story, which I'm not going to go through, but I was raised in a Christian home, you know, believing everything about God and Jesus and the Bible and creation and all that, and then I go off to college. I was at a Christian college for engineering, got a degree, but then I went to Whitewater for physics and at Whitewater, all my professors told me I was wrong about everything. And I realized I know what I believe, but I don't know why. I could not defend it. And it's at that point that many students end up walking away from their faith because a lot of them are kind of wanting to walk away anyway as they weren't too thrilled with the whole church thing in the Bible. They can't really do what they want. They're not thrilled with their parents and all this. So they're looking for an excuse to bolt, and now their professors give them academic reasons to, to be gone. And often when the students return home, they're not necessarily finding answers. So they think, okay, my professors were right, and they feel justified in walking away. So that's the whole reason why I travel around. It's not just to give like science lectures or trivia. It's about a foundation for a belief. Uh, it's the starting point for us, which I might explain a little bit more at the end of the whole idea behind the name of our ministry, the Starting Point Project. Um, most of you know me a little bit. I normally give my background a certain way of Changed it up a little bit for this morning, so I'm not doing the same thing all the time. Here's one of the verses I relate to, 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's kind of how I see myself. I'm a nobody, but God uh, wants to do something, and he's letting me go along for the ride. So uh, the ministry is effective not because of who I am. It's effective because of who God is, what he wants to do, and I'm trying really hard to stay out of God's way. Another verse I relate to is John 4:44. Jesus said, A prophet has no honor in his hometown. Uh, that's why I travel all the time, <laughs> um, because I don't get any respect. Now, for, for those of you who are under 40, you probably don't get that. You ask your parents who that is. It's, it's my version of some humor there. Um, also, very quickly, just a reminder, I do Grand Canyon tours. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? A number of you. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon with a guide who is a Christian and a creationist? I don't see any hands. The rest of you just saw a big hole in the ground. <laughs> uh, now, it is cool, but li- literally, after you get there, a few minutes after you get there, you're just like, it's, it's just cool. And it really is. But you don't know what else to think other than it's big and it's cool. If you get a chance to go, and you don't have to go with us, but if you get a chance ever to go with a creationist group going, take advantage of it, because what we do on our tours is we actually we, we spend one day walking along the rim, the next day we're on the river, you're walking on a flat paved path, we take a bus down to the river so you're not repelling and climbing rocks and all that, and it's a smooth ride on a raft, and all along the way we point out scientific evidence for the authority of God's word that there really was a worldwide flood, the Genesis flood, 6 through 8, it actually happened. We show some of the best scientific evidence on the planet right there at the canyon. You can see it for yourself. It's just, it's an amazing trip. So if you have an opportunity to go, we have a special that we're doing this summer. Our first trip sold out in May, but we got another one in July. For everyone who signs up at church, the pastor gets $50 off. So if 20 of you sign up, 
that's $1,000 off. That's more than the cost of the trip. So pastor can quit his day job and just kind of go with us full-time on our tours here. But it's a really great trip not to see trivia, but to strengthen your faith and the authority of God's Word, especially when families go and the kids get to go and just see, wow, this Bible stuff is not just a story of this flood. It actually happened. It's part of history, and there's so much scientific evidence behind it. And I'll, I'll actually mention a little bit more at the, at the end when I talk about our free live stream broadcast that we do. Also, very quickly, I just got back from Fiji. I was actually speaking in public schools where they were allowing us to talk about God and Genesis and creation and even Jesus Christ. It's an amazing opportunity. I'm supposed to go back in September again. Uh, if you don't know where Fiji is, you find Australia. It's way off there in the ocean. There's about 300 islands. We're on the main island uh, in remote areas, uh, going places where most people don't see in Fiji. These are some of the students that we were administering to. Um, also, another picture, my wife got to go along. And, oops, wow. <laughs> I uh, clicked a few times and it just is catching up. So now i got to get back there somehow. I'll give it a second. You can see where we're headed anyway with the PowerPoint. <laughs> I think it's going backwards. <laughs> supposed to show you that later, these nice pictures. But There we go. That's the one I wanted to stop on. Uh, this is not a dinosaur. It's just an inflatable costume. You might have picked up on that. Uh, that's my wife, actually, inside there. She came along. We were talking about the Bible and science and creation, and the kids all want to know about dinosaurs. So we talked about the truth about dinosaurs, and in the middle of that, my wife comes in with this on, the kids laugh, and it's kind of funny. But... Um, we had some challenges, too. We were supposed to leave this school and go to another school, and we went back on the road that we came on. And if I get to the next slide without going ahead too far, the next slide should have a picture of the road we came out on. We crossed a number of bridges. This might be really challenging if... Oh, here we go. This was supposed to be a bridge. <laughs> Uh, it's now just a river. You can see across here, that's the road we were trying to get to. Um, didn't have, we stood there for three and a half hours and realized this, this isn't getting any better, and I could tell the bridge had washed out. So uh, in the middle of the night, we decided we can't go that way. The only other way to go is the other direction on the road, which is an extra five hours out of the way. So we had to drive all night, and we went right to the next school, so we didn't sleep at all, but about four in the morning... We stopped because here are the clouds. We were way up in the mountains, so these are the tops of the clouds, and then the moon it was just a beautiful shot. And then the other picture you saw that was a little bit later, uh, it's just a beautiful place um, to, to visit. But again, we were in a very remote area seeing kids. They didn't get visitors because no one comes to see them. All people go to the resorts on the other islands. But it was just a neat opportunity to share the truth of God's Word in a public school system, which would never, ever happen here in our country. So with the, the talk itself... Pretty simple concept. Again, science discovers something, they're confused, but Christians are like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. We're going to go through these eight examples. They're going to go pretty quick. I'm going to fly through this. And then again, if you guys have questions at the end, I'll be out in the lobby. But it's just pretty powerful showing us that we can trust God's word from cover to cover in everything it says. The more we discover about science, the more we get excited about, yep, God, even though this was his first shot at writing a book, he did a pretty good job. Uh, so we're going to look at those um, eight topics. Let me back up again here <laughs> real quick. Eight different topics we're going to go through. I'm going to explain each one as we get there, but we're going to look at the Earth's oceans, where they came from, how much water is there, Adam and Eve, something called the population bottleneck, living fossils, dinosaurs, and soft tissue. That's one of the most interesting ones. Mutations, and then something called epigenetics, which I'll explain that when we get there. First, starting off with the Earth's oceans, their origins. Where did these things come from? Well, the standard story tells us this. But these oceans have not always existed on our planet, arriving here many hundreds of millions of years after the Earth first took shape four and a half billion years ago. So the Earth forms out of gases swirling, the nebular hypothesis, four and a half billion years ago. Millions of years later, the oceans form. And this is what they tell us about where the waters came from. Again, just bear with me here. Where did the water come from? Our ocean water arrived in frozen lumps from space during one of the most violent episodes in our planet's early history. 
exactly where these comets and asteroids came from is uncertain, (laughs) meaning they don't have any evidence, but that's the story they tell. And they say additional sources of water as well. Volcanoes and other fissures in the crust allowed superheated water vapors to escape into the atmosphere. And they go on to say something. (laughs) They say, and it rained and rained, possibly for millennia. If nothing else, the deluge recounted by countless mythical creation stories correlates with what happened in the earliest, most tumultuous uh, years of the earth. So they say, you know, water's coming up from within the earth, up into the atmosphere, and it's raining and raining and raining and raining. Kind of like that flood story, but oh, that's just a myth here. But even though they're finding evidence here, they, they want to separate the two. They don't want you to think they found evidence for the biblical story. Well, the breaking news, origin of Earth's water traced back to the birth of our planet, not millions and millions of years later. They say fragments of Earth's earliest rock, preserved unchanged deep in the mantle until they were coughed up by volcanic eruptions, suggests that our planet has had water from the very beginning. Again, this is just the opposite of what they've taught for years and years and years and years and years. So they tell us, you got to trust them. They know what they're talking about. This is truth, this is truth, this is truth, this is truth. Oh, we were totally wrong about that. It's this. But now trust us now. It's this, it's this, it's this. And they're constantly saying, this changes everything, changing their story, but we're supposed to continually trust them along the way. What does the Bible say about all this? Well, it's pretty straightforward. The Bible talks about the creation account and the flood. Second Peter chapter 3 says the earth was formed out of water and by water. That means water would have been here from the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God created the earth out of water, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Water was here right from the beginning. That's what Scripture's told us all along. And science is finally catching up, and you're realizing, wow, there's evidence for that. And then we look at the amount of water on the planet. What's interesting is when we look at the earth and Mars and talk about a whole idea of a flood, the earth today is covered 70% by liquid water, and they found a little bit of frozen water on Mars. And geologists say because of the frozen water on Mars, they think that there's probably been a global flood there to explain its features. But the Earth is 70% covered with liquid water. They Oh, flood. Yeah, there's no way there was a flood on this planet. So here's very smart scientists not making any sense or being completely inconsistent with their logic. What's interesting, if you took the Earth today flatten it out, smooth it out, push the oceans down, raise the the trenches up so it's nice and smooth. There's enough water just in the oceans to cover 1.7 miles deep. That's how much water is just in the oceans. But you know what? Now they're finding more water. Breaking news. Earth may have underground ocean three times of that on the surface. After decades of searching, scientists have discovered that a vast reservoir of water, enough to fill the oceans oceans three times over, may be trapped hundreds of miles beneath the surface. Well, what does Scripture say about that? It's pretty straightforward. Again, we go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. It talks about the earth was formed out of water and by water. It's very clear. And it says, by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So God used water to create the earth to begin with. And then roughly about 1,700 years later, he uses the same waters to flood the earth in judgment because of mankind's sin. And so we could take a look at this. Genesis chapter 7, part of the flood narrative. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven were opened. The flood wasn't just clouds raining for 40 days. That would be a silly story. The Bible says the floodgates, the fountains of the deep were opened up. That was the first thing that happened in this flood narrative. So we see evidence of superheated water coming out of the earth up into the atmosphere and coming back down as torrential rains for 40 days and 40 nights. You have plates of the earth moving, magma coming up in the oceans, hitting ocean waters and super flash heating it. Steam jets going up into the atmosphere and then coming back down as rain. So there's evidence of this layer of water in the earth and then coming up the beginning of the flood and coming back down as rain. 
So that's what the Bible describes, and that's what the scientists are discovering. It's like, wow, there's a lot of water under these layers of the earth, so it's not a surprise. Then we next quickly move on to Adam and Eve. This is very interesting. Here's the standard view of the origin of man that we learn in our school systems. We've got uh, chimpanzees at the top of the next slide here. So here's the chimps, and then we've got humans, and they share a common ancestor down here. They say about six million years ago. So six million years ago, it branched off. This went into the chimpanzees, and this went into all the ape men, and then modern man. About six million years ago. Well, what's interesting is Newsweek had a cover story called The Search for Adam and Eve. They were not looking for the biblical Adam and Eve. What they were looking for is the first modern male and the first modern female because they actually think that we have all descended from one man and one woman. But before you get excited, oh, that's not the Bible thing, but yet there is evidence from one man and one woman. Here's why, because of genetics. So they're using science to determine this. I'm not going to go through all the details, but the reason they know there was one man is because males are the only one who have a Y chromosome. So by studying the Y chromosome, they can tell that, wow, there must have been one single male we've all come from. And then with the female, the female is the only one who passes on this mitochondrial DNA that's outside the nucleus of the cell. Females are the only one that pass that on. So by studying mitochondrial DNA, they can figure out, wow, there, there had to be actually one female that we've all come from. But they say, but don't get excited. It's not the Genesis, Adam and Eve thing. This male and female didn't actually even live at the same time. They passed on their genetics, but they weren't alive at the same time. Uh, breaking news, a genetic Adam and Eve did not live too far apart in time. Um, here's what they've discovered. Why chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve were thought to have lived tens of thousands of years apart. Now two major studies suggest that they may have lived around the same time after all. Who knew? <laughs> What a shocker that is. Well, what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, that's also pretty straightforward here. In Genesis, the creation account, it says, So God created man in his own image. Male and female created he them. And there was an evening in the morning, the sixth day. God created Adam and Eve on the very same day. So yes, they lived at the same time. That's what the Bible will expect, and that's what we're seeing in modern genetics uh, next, we'll talk about something called a population bottleneck. This one, I think, is really, really interesting. The breaking news here is when humans faced extinction. So they're, they're surprised to figure out that we almost went extinct. Humans may have come close to extinction about 70,000 years ago, according to the latest genetic research. Now, don't get too hung up with the 70,000-year uh, amount Put it in context. They're dating. I, I give lectures on dating methods and all that. I think the, the date is off, but put it in context. They think we've been evolving from an ape-like creature for 6 million years. So 70,000 years is very recent in their line of thinking. So they are telling us very recently, almost all people on the planet went extinct. Why do they think that? Well, because of something called a population bottleneck, and this is kind of how it works. We've got colored dots over here representing a diversity of genetics out there. Then a catastrophic event occurs, and we lose a lot of these living forms, and now we're just left with the red and the blue varieties. So then they're going to repopulate, starting with just red and blue, so you get a lot more red and blue. It's going to take a long time before you start getting more diversity there. Here's the point. When they study human genetics all across the planet, it should be extremely spread out. If we've been evolving for six million years and just kept going and going and going, it should be really spread out in, in great variety. It's not. We are all so closely related. They're like, what's with that? Oh, there must have been a population bottleneck where almost everybody died out, just a small group survived to more recently repopulate the earth. Well, why does that sound so familiar? Well, Here's a book written by Jerry Coyne. He's an evolutionist from the University of Chicago. And he wrote this. It's theorized based on genetic evidence that a few tens of thousands of years ago, the population of Homo sapiens was reduced for a period, of a, a period to a few thousand or tens of thousands of people. 
Such a bottleneck would explain the extremely low level of genetic diversity found within our species when contrasted with others, such as chimps. Well, here's an an update from May of last year, so almost a, a year ago. It says, an abrupt population bottleneck specific to human males has been inferred across several old world, meaning African, Europe, and Asia populations about five to 7,000 years before present. So now it's even squished down. The genetic evidence is saying it's even, even more recent than they expected. Well, what does the Bible have to say about this? You probably know where we're headed with this. The flood account on the very same day, Noah, his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his three sons entered into the ark. There was a worldwide flood where it was just Noah and his wife, three sons and their wives. Eight people survived. And it was only six of them, the three sons and three wives, that repopulated the whole earth. That would have been about four and a half thousand years ago. So yes, the Bible says there was a population genetic or a population bottleneck, genetically speaking, about four and a half thousand years ago, where we started repopulating the earth. And as a bonus, it's not just people, but animals too. They've got genetic information that shows them something very similar. So the straightforward hypothesis is that almost all existing animal species have arrived from mitochondrial uniformity, that's this bottleneck, within the last one to several hundred thousand years. That's when they were saying people almost went extinct. Now they're saying, wow, it looks like almost all the animals were wiped out and they started over about the same time. So summarizing this, they think that humans almost went extinct recently, animals almost went extinct recently, and that humans and animals have re-emerged basically at the same time. Well, again, why does that sound so familiar? Well, the flood. Not only Noah and his family, but two of each kind of animal. All the other animals were wiped out, and they started over again. I, I just thought of something that I hadn't thought of sharing before. One of their quotes said, almost all animals you know, started over recently. And I, I get kind of busy. I give up to 190 talks a year. I'm traveling all the time, and... Uh, so I don't always have time to, to think about every single individual topic. Um, but I, it kind of bothered me. Why were they saying almost all animals? It really would be all animals, you know, at the flood and all that. It's like, no, actually they're right. Not all animals. So what about the fish? They survived in the oceans. So you got the original creation living in the oceans. The flood comes, and a lot of those survived through that period. They didn't have to all restart during the flood. So it would be the majority of animals, all the land animals and all that, but the fish wouldn't have necessarily had that bottleneck as much. So that's kind of interesting. It lines up even more detail with Scripture. The next topic we have has to do with living fossils. I'll explain that in a second. Uh, This is an interesting creature they've discovered more recently. The frilled sharks have been swimming the Earth's depths since the time of the dinosaurs. So dinosaurs, they say, oh, millions and millions of years ago. Here's a breaking new prehistoric dinosaur-era shark with insane teeth found swimming off the coast of Portugal. So something that probably should have died out a long time ago is still swimming around. They say the rare frilled shark is considered a living fossil because of evidence of its existence dates back at least 80 million years ago. Scientists believe the thrill shark has remained the same both inside and out, unevolved. Should be a highlight there. So this thing, they say, was alive when the dinosaurs were alive, and it's still alive today, and it's the same as we see in the fossil record. So for 80 years of 80 million years of its history, it hasn't changed. It's unevolved. Well, wait a minute, how does that work? Evolution keeps changing and changing and changing things. How did this guy miss the memo? He was supposed to evolve into something else. And we have other examples. Here's a fish, fossil of a fish called a coelacanth. Scientists have told us for years and years and years and years, this thing lived during the time of the dinosaurs and became extinct 65 million years ago. That's when it went extinct. It's gone. Well, here's a problem with that concept. We find them swimming around in the oceans today. They're still here. They did not become extinct 65 million years ago. So here's the problem. So the scientists tell us, that this fish started to evolve about 400 million years ago in the Devonian layer here, and then it lived up until the Paleocene here about you know, 65 million years ago. That's when they say dinosaurs died out. So dinosaurs 
became extinct, and so did this fish about 65 million years ago. So that's when it was alive. It was not alive during this time. Well, if they're still swimming around today, that means they were alive during these years here. Not only were they still alive, but apparently they never fossilized. 65 million years of existence, and they didn't fossilize at all. Worse than that, they've been alive for over 400 million years, And they didn't evolve. They didn't change at all because they look identical to the fossil record. They didn't start growing wings or legs or anything. Nothing. No changes in 400 million years of evolution. That doesn't make any sense. To me, it doesn't make sense that those 400 million years really existed. To me, these layers were laid down rapidly during the flood, which is what the Bible tells us about. Genesis 1.21, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves... Uh, with which the waters swarm. So God creates them to begin with, all in the same week. And later again, we have the flood account. About four and a half thousand years ago, the flood comes and creatures are getting buried. Land creatures and even some fish are getting buried and fossilizing. That's why you know, some of them survive and we're swimming around today, but they're not any different than the fossil record because they're, they're not evolving and they're not that old to begin with. Next one, probably the most interesting one here, dinosaurs and soft tissue. This one's fascinating. And before I tell you the standard view, this is an example of something that should be on the cover of every magazine out there, even if it's Golf Digest. (laughs) They should find some way to bring this up. This should be on every television program, newscast, YouTube videos. It should be tweeted, by Donald Trump, you know, every day. This is something that's incredible. So why have most of you not heard about the discovery of soft tissue in dinosaur bones? Because they can't explain it yet. This is totally thwarting their ideas, and they can't get around it, so it's hush-hush. Eventually, they'll make up some answer that seems plausible, and then they'll be excited to tell you all about it, how they've discovered it and everything, but until then, you are not going to hear about it. This, this one, I think, is, is so cool. Here's a standard story about dinosaurs in general. It said dinosaurs lived during the Mesozoic era from the late Triassic period, about 225 million years ago, until the end of the Cretaceous, about 65 million years ago. But we now know that they actually live on as the birds. So most of you are thinking, well, you've never seen a dinosaur. You probably saw one on the way to church. It just flew out of a tree or something. Now that sounds silly, but I am dead serious. You want to see a dinosaur today, just start looking around in the trees today. Anything flying around, those are dinosaurs. That's what secular scientists believe. Dinosaurs didn't really become extinct. They evolved into birds. Why do they believe that? Because as an evolutionist, they have to explain where everything came from. So when they look at people, well, where did we come from? Well, they look at all the other animals. You know what? Apes, they look more like us than anything else. So we evolved from apes. Well, you do that with dinosaurs and birds. You actually look at birds like, where did birds come from? Not a clue. they got to figure out something, so their best bet is maybe some groups of dinosaurs slowly morphed into birds. So that's their answer. There's no genetic evidence for that. There's no fossil evidence for that. They really can't explain the origin of birds, but they had to come from somewhere, so their best guess right now is dinosaurs evolved into birds. That's a whole other talk that I give. Breaking news, ancient tissue found in 195-million-year-old dinosaur rib. It might be the oldest soft tissue sample ever found. Researchers discovered ancient collagen and protein remains preserved in the ribs of a dinosaur that walked the earth 195 million years ago. Here's soft tissue and red blood cells. There's red blood cells and some soft tissue. It was initially discovered in the 1990s, actually, by Dr. Mary Schweitzer. She's an evolutionist, happened to be looking at a femur from a T-Rex under the microscope, and she saw something that looked like red blood cells and soft tissue. Her first response was, well, but I mean, it can't be, because we know these bones are 65 million years old, so, and these materials cannot last that long. So it can't be that. It's got to be something else. She kept looking at it, did another test. 
It looked like soft tissue. You could stretch it. It would snap back. Red blood cells. Did the test again and 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 17 times. Why? Three or four would be fine. That's not the answer she wanted. So she kept doing it again and again. Eventually she gave up and she's like, this is soft tissue from dinosaur bones. So what she did is uh, she and all the other scientists on the planet changed their mind about evolution. They're all creationists now and they go to church and they worship Jesus, right? No. Now they're scrambling to figure out how, how these materials could possibly survive for millions and millions and millions and millions of years. Their best guess right now is iron. You see, if iron is, is associated with this, these materials, it could help them be preserved a little longer. Yeah, it can, a little longer. Not for millions and millions of years. That is a stretch. No evidence for that. So it's still hush-hush. Wouldn't this be exciting to find soft tissue and red blood cells and dinosaur bones? Everybody should be talking about that, but it, it destroys their theory, so they're not going to talk about it. More recently, now they even have DNA from dinosaur bones. That stuff's even more fragile than red blood cells and soft tissue. It cannot last for hundreds of thousands and millions of years, but it's still there. Shocking to them. Well, what do we learn from Scripture? Scripture makes perfect sense of it. Again, everything goes back to the flood. Basically, you got Genesis, creation account that God creates all the living creatures. And that first week, land creatures on day six. So God actually created the land creatures on day six. Well, aren't dinosaurs land creatures? Yeah, they are. So it's a whole other talk on dinosaurs in the Bible. Maybe I'll give that talk sometime here. If you're looking at Scripture, God says he created all the land creatures on day six. And he created Adam and Eve on day six. Doesn't that put dinosaurs and people together at the same time? Yeah, it does. Oh, that can't be. Why not? Because my teacher said, because I read an article. Okay, yeah, they may have said something different. The article may have said something different. What does God's word say? It says he created everything in six days and the land creatures on day six. God could have said, yeah, I created those dinosaurs millions and millions of years ago. And then later, eventually, you know, they died out and I created everything else. He could say that. He didn't. He said he created everything in six days, and the more we look at science, the more that makes sense. So they were actually created together at the same time, and then you got this whole flood thing going on again, about 1,700 years after creation, and about 4,500 years ago. So you get dinosaurs, some of them got buried very rapidly, and the bones fossilized, and that's why we can still see most dinosaur bones are still fresh. They haven't even fossilized yet. If they were millions of years old, they should have all fossilized. But most of them are still fresh. And they have carbon-14 in them, and they have soft tissue and red blood cells and DNA. makes perfect sense if there really was a flood not too long ago. It makes no sense whatsoever if evolution is true and the secular scientists are true about what they're telling us. Second to last topic here, the idea of mutations. What is a mutation? When creatures reproduce, they make a copy of their DNA, and they pass it on to their offspring. DNA has all that information to develop their body and help them function. So in reproduction, you copy the DNA. A mutation is an accidental copying error. It's a mistake. It's random. When the information is copied, oops, 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 got that wrong, got that wrong, oops, oops. It's not trying to improve the creature. It's not like fish tried to evolve lungs because they were running out of food in the water and had to get up on land to breathe air to find new sources of food. That's what they'll often teach. You're like, well, okay, they had to do something. I mean, no. How do they do that? They don't even know what lungs are. They don't know what oxygen is. They don't know what land is. Even if they knew what those things were, what are they going to do about it? All they have is genetic information to make fish parts. All they can do is copy that information. They can make mistakes along the way, and that's what mutations are. They're accidental copying errors, and this is what the scientists tell us about mutations. Here's the standard view on mutations. Mutations are essential to evolution. They are the raw material of genetic variation. Without mutation, evolution could not occur. So they tell us this is critical. If you have to take a single-celled organism and turn it into a human being, you have to add a lot of information to do that. They say mutations are what do do that. No, it's impossible. I give a whole other talk on DNA and mutations and all that. Mutations aren't going to create all that new information. They're random copying errors or mistakes. Well, here's the breaking news. Human evolution enters an exciting 
new phase, and this is what was in the article, most of the mutations that we found arose in the last 200 generations or so. Wait a minute. If we've been evolving from an ape-like creature for 6 million years, why is it that it's only within the last maybe 200 generations that these copying errors are happening? That makes no sense. They should have been going on for millions and millions of years because we can't stop it. Things are breaking down. Mistakes happen. It cannot be stopped. It's a huge concern for them. It's part of another talk that I give where scientists are worried about how long are humans going to be around because we are not improving, as they tell us, evolving, getting better. No, we are going downhill. Everything in genetics screams we're going downhill. More and more mutations are accumulating. Every time we reproduce as humans, we're adding about another at least 100 mistakes to our DNA. So your parents had a bunch of mistakes. They copied all those, gave them to you, plus they added another 100 you had the mistakes plus your parents' mistakes with the new hundred, and then you added another hundred, gave it to your kids, and on and on and on. We are getting worse and worse and worse. You can only do that so long and still, still actually function and be alive. So they're worried about uh, how long are we going to last. It doesn't match up with millions and millions of years of evolution. and it, it matches up with a perfect creation and then sin coming in and us going downhill, and that's where we're headed. So why this 200 generations, where is that coming from? That's really interesting. They go on to say 73% of all genetic variation arising in just the last 5,000 years. Of variations that seem to likely to cause harm, a full 91% emerged in this time, this 5,000-year period. Well, let's take a look at that. What does the Bible say about any of this? Well, 6,000 years. When you study Scripture, which is really important, and you try to figure out when was Adam here on this planet, it is no question whatsoever that Jesus Christ lived about 2,000 years ago. Atheists believe Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. They don't think he was the Son of God, but they know there was a guy claiming to be the Messiah who lived 2,000 years ago. No question. Abraham, no question. Even from skeptics, they know Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. That takes us back to about 4,000 years ago to Abraham. Okay, how long from Abraham back to Adam? You look at the genealogies and the chronology, and you get roughly another 2,000 years. That puts Adam and Eve roughly 6,000 years ago. There's so much evidence for that, scripturally speaking, and there's actually tons of genetic information for that. Again, that's a, a whole other talk. But let's just say for now, we got Adam about 6,000 years ago. Well, 30 years, that's an approximate time of a generation. Some people have kids before they're 30. Some people have a few kids after they're 30. So 30 is about an average. Well, you do the simple math here, and you come up with roughly 200 generations. The reason that these mutations are showing up only in the last 200 generations is that's all there's been. We haven't been evolving for 6 million years. We've had roughly 200 generations of human history. That's why they're all showing up. And then further, we take a look at that 5,000-year figure where they said 73% of all genetic variation occurs in that time and 91% of the ones that are likely to cause harm are occurring in that time period. We take a look at the time frame here in the Bible. You've got creation here, and roughly 4,500 years ago, which is close to that 5,000-year mark, that's when we have the flood. So you have the population bottleneck, and you only have eight people, six of which are going to repopulate the earth. So you've got their children interbreeding, intermarrying with their own you know, brothers and sisters for a while. It wasn't a moral problem. God didn't say you can't do that, it's wrong. It wasn't a genetic problem back then. Eventually, as they start repopulating, there's enough people out there, you don't have to marry your brother or sister anymore. There's other choices. It was starting to become a genetic problem, and it was starting to become a moral problem. So then God says, hey, Mo, I'll write down in Leviticus, you don't marry your brother, your sister, your dad's wife, your, husband, your, your mom's husband, and all those things. You don't do those. That's, that was a few thousand years after the cre initial creation account and well after the flood. So you've got a small population starting to repopulate with a limited amount of genetics to work with, and then you've got a lot more harmful radiation coming in from the sun because things have changed after the flood. So we would expect these genetic mutations to really start to kick in at that point, and that's what modern genetics is showing us. It's backing up what the Bible's been telling us all along. 
So the last one we're going to talk about has to do with something called epigenetics. Genetics has to do with the genes. Genetics, genes in the DNA. Epa means above or beyond. So epigenetics is something outside of the genetics, outside of the DNA. And it's really interesting. Here's the standard view on DNA. It says people used to think that once your epigenetic code was laid down in early development, that was it for life. Your DNA is your destiny. Whatever you have, that's it. There's nothing you can do. Kind of predestined, your DNA, that's it. Whatever's there, that's it. Well, the breaking news, there was an article in Time Magazine, Why Your DNA Isn't Your Destiny. It says, the new science of epigenetics reveals how choices you make can change your genes and those of your kids. Choices you make can not only make changes for yourself, They can make changes for your kids. This is what the secular scientists are telling us, and it's really interesting. So we got the DNA picture here or here, the coiled-up ladder. The rungs on the ladder, that's what we call nucleotides. Those are like letters, you know, in in words that you're reading. You group a whole bunch of those, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of these rungs together, and you get chapters of information, instructions, doing things. That's what your DNA is all about. So the rungs... That's where the information is on your DNA. Well, we've got something on the outside here, these little purple diamonds here called methyl tags. They can attach on the outside of that ladder. They don't change the information at all. They just change how the information gets expressed. They might attach in a certain area of the DNA and say, you guys right here, you rungs, we know you want to do this and that and that. That's what you're supposed to do. We're not going to let you. It suppresses it. Other times, it enhances it and really makes it happen. So these methyl tags kind of change the expression of the information. The information doesn't change. It just changes whether the information gets used or not. And those tags can get generated through choices you make, which can affect your life, but they can also get passed on to your children and grandchildren and affect affect their lives by choices you make. It could be choices you make in what you eat. Choices whether you exercise or not. It could even be your attitude. If you're just a continually bitter person, it could affect that. It could even affect your children and grandchildren. It's fascinating. Here's an example from science. They would take some mice in the laboratory, and they would expose them to the smell of cherry blossom. Very nice. But every time they did that, they gave the mouse a little shock in the foot. So they got some learned behavior. Anytime they smelled this nice smell of cherry blossom, they started shuddering because they knew what was coming, a shock. That's very straightforward. That's not a surprise. That happens to us. I mean, if, if you were told that every accident out there, every auto accident was caused by a yellow car, what are you going to do when you're driving down the road and you see a yellow car coming? You're going to get out of the way. You're going to react. You learn that behavior. That, that's really straightforward. Dogs can learn that behavior. If every time you you hold your arm up like that, it goes like that because it knows it might get hit or whatever it is. It's learned behavior. It's not a surprise. What was a surprise was this. They would breed these mice to have baby mice. The baby mice knew nothing about their parents and their lives and their experiences. They're They're just on the planet now. They don't know about their parents and their parents' experience. They took these baby mice and exposed them to the smell of cherry blossom. And they instantly started shuddering. Now, they didn't shock these baby mice at all. Never. They just gave them the smell of cherry blossom, and they started panicking. Why? They looked at the DNA. The rungs on the DNA had not changed. It's the same information, but the methyl tags were passed along to pass along these experiences. They've also studied grandchildren of grandparents who had gone through the Holocaust. Now, I... Imagine going through the Holocaust, that would directly affect your life and your thinking, your experiences, and all those things. It would be very horrific. Well, these grandchildren, they didn't experience any of that. They were just kind of casually told, oh, yeah, your, your grandfather, he was actually in one of the prison camps. Oh, wow, tell me about that. So he tell them about it. It's like, wow, that, that would stink. And then they go on with their lives. But they've studied these children and grandchildren, and many of them actually exhibit psychological traits of the grandparents, even though they never experienced any of that, because these things were passed down probably through these methyl tags. Now, what does the Bible say about epigenetics? Well, 
Obviously, the Bible doesn't talk about epigenetics. It's a modern term that we use, but there's something interesting that I think can be tied in. I don't want to push this too far, but Exodus 34, 7, visiting the iniquities of the father and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this is important. This is a covenantal thing, not a legal thing. What does that mean? This doesn't mean that if their parents commit some crime or murder someone, they're to be put to death, the grandchildren to be put to death for that. It's not talking about that. It's talking about a covenant between the parents and God. If the father breaks his covenant with God, starts worshiping other gods, that can affect his children and grandchildren. Now, fortunately, that can be reversed. Many instances in the Bible in the Old Testament where someone is saying, hey, look at all these pillars and these statues worshiping these false gods. My father or grandfather created, he erected these pillars here. I'm tearing them down. I'm going to worship the true God. And then that reverses any kind of curse or consequences that come. You can reverse course. It's the same thing even in the physical world. Maybe your parents were chain smokers or drank too much or had drug problems or whatever it was. That, that could affect you physically. But you can say, you know what, I'm going to make some more healthy choices. I'm going to try to eat a little bit better, exercise a little bit, whatever. You can change those things, and even those methyl tags in your body can change by the choices you make. So you're not doomed from birth because of your parents or grandparents. Same thing spiritually. You're not doomed from birth because of bad choices. But there's a parallel here, and I think the Bible makes perfect sense of that. So, summarizing again, scientists have and will continue to discover things that just don't make any sense to them. But the more you know God's Word, the less of a surprise it is, because the the Bible says, yeah, that's what we would expect. That's what we would expect if it's perfectly with God's Word. So that should be a great encouragement to you as you think through these things. We never have to be intimidated by science, because science always backs up what God's Word says. Very, very quickly, um, I'm just going to highlight resources we brought along. We have a free email newsletter comes out once a month. You can sign up at our table here. We've got a form there, or you can go right to our website, which is thestartingpointproject.com. Again, it's free, comes out once a month. And in it, we also have a question of the month. Uh, this, this month's question, I think, oh, is the earth actually flat? That's, that's something that's coming up, and it's rearing its ugly head again. A lot of people have jumped on that bandwagon, a lot of Christians. And if you watch certain videos on YouTube, it makes your head spin. It sounds like they got a pretty good case. Now, when you look into each one of those things, like, oh, okay, okay, that, here's the answer to that. But some people love conspiracies, and so this is becoming more popular. I'll just warn you ahead of time, I didn't take time. and I keep my, my articles pretty short. I'm not going through point by point and refuting everything. There's articles out there that do all that and videos and all that. I'm making a larger point with that question. But anyway, that's what we do with the monthly newsletter. I, I throw out a question that gets you to think a little bit deeper and strengthens your faith. So that's available as a free resource. Also, we do free live stream broadcasts. Our next one coming up, it's coming up pretty soon, actually a week from this coming Wednesday, I think. It's April 16th. To, maybe it's a Tuesday. I can't remember. Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, it's at, we do it at 7.30 and 9.30. We do it twice. You can watch one or the other. We do it twice to cover both the East and the West Coast. All you have to do is go to our website, thestartingpointproject.com. You don't have to install any software or sign up for anything. You just go to the website. You'll see the video here. I'll speak for about 30, 40 minutes tops. And then you can actually type in a question while you're watching and hit the submit button. We get it instantly. When I'm done speaking, my producer puts the questions up on the monitor here, and I just look over, read the question and answer. We do live Q&A. It's a free resource. You can also see all of our past episodes by just going to thestartingpointproject.com. Click on archives, and you'll see all the past episodes. We're in the middle of a series right now about the Genesis flood. This topic I'm doing uh, this coming episode is scientific evidence that there really was a flood. The first episode last month was, what's this whole flood thing about? What does the Bible say? What's its significance? This month will be scientific evidence, and then next month we'll be looking at modern-day occurrences of a little bit of water doing tons of damage in a very short period of time to kind of back up. This is what happened with the flood. It was a lot of water, but in a very short period of time. So that's another free resource available. We also have all the DVDs. We've got 10 DVDs out there on the table, little pocket-sized booklets, and then a book that I wrote. Uh, also, we don't charge anything for events. If you're interested, we've got a form you can fill out. 
I do get pretty busy, so I can't fulfill every request, but uh, what we do is we just have you fill out this form, turn it into us today, uh, and just put your contact information on it and just say ABC Church Wyoming or wherever it is. Maybe it's where you used to attend if you used to live across the country. Maybe you have an aunt or an uncle who was a pastor somewhere. Just turn that in, and all we ask you to do first is you contact whoever it is you know, your former pastor, your aunt, you know, your, your uncle, your nephew, whoever. Contact them and ask them if they would accept a phone call from me. That's all you have to do. You don't have to defend our ministry, explain all the details, answer all their questions. Just say, could Jay call you? And they say, yes. Then you follow up with me and say, I got a hold of him. Here's his name and number. I don't need their name and number today. But once they say yes to you, let me know. I will then call and explain what we do that we don't charge. We do ask that travel expenses be covered. Um, but we never charge anything for the event. So if, if you have a connection, someone else might want an event, you can fill out this form out on our table. Also, just very, very quickly, I've been speaking 33 years. I've never charged a penny, never will. The main way our ministry survives is by monthly donors. And I think that your first and foremost financial priority is to your local church here. Beyond that, God puts it on your heart that you think this is an important message that other people need to hear. If you decide to become a monthly supporter, we want to give you a free set of our DVDs and a free copy of my book to take with you today, Uh, not just as a thank you, but as a great set of resources to strengthen your faith, better position you to mentor your own children and grandchildren who might be tempted to walk away, and then also be better positioned to share the gospel message with those around you. So we're nonprofit. See us afterwards if you're interested in that. And then, again, just stay connected through our website if you have additional questions in the future. Wrapping this up, um, this is not really about science, about DNA, epigenetics, dinosaurs, or anything. It's all about the gospel message, which means the authority of God's word is important. The problem is if you go out and try to share the gospel message and they say, yeah, but that, that comes from that Bible thing and that's outdated, it's been disproven, filled with errors and contradictions. There are so many different versions. Science has disproven the creation account. There never was a flood. Jesus isn't the son of God, and on and on and on. And then you're like, uh, just trust Jesus. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. But if you say, hold on, you, you don't think that this is God's word? No, I don't. Okay, I can understand why you're not too quick to just jump on the Jesus stuff. Let's tackle some of that. And then you can start sharing some of the things of how we know this is truly the inspired word of God. Maybe just share one of these things that, we've, that I've covered this morning. Many, many evidences you could share very simply. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to have a few examples of why you can be confident in God's word. So then you can get back to talking about Jesus and the gospel message. And you want to do it with all humility and very graciously with them. It's not about winning an argument or having them think you're any better than them because we're not. <laughs> we're just, by God's grace, saved, forgiven, and we can finally see things clearly. So we need to help remove the blinders from their eyes, which happens when you graciously share God's word and the Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting to remove the spiritual blinders so that they can see the truth of the gospel message. So I will close in a word of prayer and look forward to seeing you afterwards. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time we've had to ultimately take a look at the authority of your word. I pray for each person here this morning that they would be in your word each day and that challenge goes to myself. It's sometimes so hard to read it because I've kind of been there, done that, but no. Help us to depend upon your word each day for truth and strengthening from you. And that I pray for each person here this morning that actually this week, God, you would bring someone in their past who needs to hear the truth of the gospel. You would give them the words to say, And they would realize it's not by their own effort, their own power, their own cleverness, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit through your word that lives will be changed. And we just thank you for the graciousness and patience you show each one of us each day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.